I wasn't instantly passionate about sports psychology right. or mindset or the way that human beings work and operate. The ridiculous thing was the whole the whole thing's so uncharacteristic for me. I mean, even asking girls out, um, I was petrified when I was at school. The, the, those who become really good at it understand that whatever it is, there's a lesson within it and there's an opportunity to learn from that lesson and get better. Today's guest is Simon Hartley, one of the UK's leading performance coaches and sports psychologists. Simon and I have shared the stage at several events and I'm always struck by how eloquently he simplifies the principles of high performance. The teams he's worked with have amassed over 30 world records and world championships, so he really knows what he's talking about. If you enjoy what you hear, please do like and subscribe. It will mean the world to me and will help this podcast reach as many people as possible. There's real magic here. Enjoy. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So my first question for you, um, and this could be in your personal life or your professional life, what's the most important thing that you've ever had to pitch for? Uh Probably. Um, so I'm going to say this because it's uh, our 22nd wedding anniversary today. Um, probably asking my wife the uh, the big question, I suspect. Oh, congratulations. 22nd, did you say? 22nd wedding anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously a very successful pitch. <laughs> well, it did the job, I suspect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm still waiting for her to realise what a stupid idea it was from her point of view um, and, uh, and ask for a way out. <laughs> So it, uh, let's, without getting too personal, let's let's just kind of t talk about that in in uh, in context of you know preparation and all of those things. Was it uh, was it an off the cuff ask, or did you uh, did you spend weeks thinking about how you were going to pop the question? Um, I spent kind of weeks over it, but it's it's like anything else. Uh, it never ever turns out the way that you've practiced it, um, <laughs> and. Uh, it, it was it was kind of the the delivery was off the cuff um if you know what i mean yeah um but uh it was the, the ridiculous thing was the whole the whole thing so uncharacteristic for me i mean even asking girls out um i was petrified when i was at school um so and caroline and i when i first asked her we'd only known each other about 3 weeks okay ish so um and and we had to we agreed on having an unofficial engagement to start with because it would have scared her parents and mine to death um so yeah we we had this unofficial anniversary oh sorry unofficial engagement for about a year Amazing. before we actually told people that we were intended on getting wow. married um oh. but it's it's kind of one of those when you know you know type you things know, you know. yeah absolutely all right let's let's keep this out of the realm of uh of, of personal life but in terms of pictures what's the one that got away um, there, there have been a few where I've sort of, at the time, I thought I really wanted that, but in hindsight, actually afterwards, probably better off without it. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of those were projects I know from experience that some of the stuff that I've turned down, um, have been sports related yep. thing. And actually I, I'm pretty sure in hindsight that there wasn't really a good fit in the first place. Right. Um, I'm not sure whether I was absolutely 100% fully committed to it. Um, and I suspect that came across mm -hmm. subconsciously, you know, when you're not really truly committed to something, 
you don't deliver it with with you know a hundred percent conviction yeah and and that's probably why it didn't transpire it's interesting isn't it that kind of chemistry and and you know that that audience connection i suppose even if, even if it's not a formal pitch but you're having those initial conversations and trying to find out if there's chemistry if there's if there's not it's very difficult to to take those things forward yeah yeah and some of them when you looked at them they, they were big jobs big salaries high profile all that sort of stuff but actually one of the issues is it you know i I was kind of pitching for what essentially would have been a full-time job in, in elite sport. And I've done yeah. this on a couple of occasions and genuinely I didn't really want a full-time involvement with anybody. I wanted to stay independent. Yeah. So fascinating. So you're, you're one of the UK's leading performance uh, psychologists and coaches. You've worked with Olympic athletes. You've worked with football teams like Bayern Munich. Um, you're doing some great work with the, the Fiji Sevens. Um, take us back to the beginning. Um, what is your story? Did you always want to be in that kind of world of sport? When I was a kid, I really only had one career ambition, and that was to be a pilot. Really? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, and not just because I watched Top Gun when I was a kid. I mean, I suspect <laughs> that did influence it. But um, uh, my dad was in the forces. We'd lived around air stations. Um, you know, I, I actually wanted to fly for the Navy rather than fly for the Air Force. Interesting. And when I was 17 years old, I took what's called a flying aptitude test to find out whether you can orientate yourself in an aeroplane and whether you, you, your brain can kind of link up what you do with a joystick and how that affects an aeroplane, all that sort of stuff. And I failed it miserably. There were three levels of um, sort of qualification. If you were pretty well coordinated um, and you had the aptitude, you got a pilot rating. If you weren't quite so good, you got navigator slash observer, which is backseat or next yeah. door seat. And if you were absolute garbage, they offered you air traffic control, which is what they <laughs> offered me. Um, and I thought, I don't actually fancy spending the rest of my life staring at the basically a large dinner plate with um with lights and dots, dots and whatever on it so uh, so i said no thank you very much and uh, and gave up on the idea of being a pilot and my careers teacher at school had told me if you want to be a pilot you need to take maths and physics mm -hmm. so i'd taken a level maths and physics i hated both of them i was only doing them in order to fly airplanes and because i hated them when i failed the flying aptitude test i also failed maths and physics spectacularly Okay. Um, so I had to choose again. Uh, I, I got so few points in my A-levels for university. That the options were not great. Um, and, and I don't want to diss any particular institutions, but it was not a great institution that I got an offer from. And it was to do a business and law degree or HNC or whatever it was, okay. but uh, it didn't inspire me. And my choice, my decision was to go back to college do wow. a third year of a levels and to take something that i was genuinely passionate about and i'd always loved playing sport so i decided to study sport um amazingly i came out with an a in my a level doing sports studies decided that i would go off to university and do the same thing and actually i expected to come out as a physiologist or a biomechanist mm. um, because <laughs> whilst I couldn't do physics, I was quite good when you call it biomechanics. Okay. It's the same stuff. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but when you call it biomechanics, I was quite good at it. I was terrible at biology at school, but when you call it exercise physiology, I was quite You're good in. at it. Okay. So it's all about um, the labels. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, rather than just the projectile, you know, forces acting on a projectile, it was a javelin yeah. or, you know, a discus or whatever. So, um, so I did quite well. And when I got to university expecting to be a physiologist, I went into all of the classes, but it was the psychology lecturer that asked me all of the questions that really sparked my curiosity. Mm. So I, I ended up just diving into psychology um, and, and sort of went through sports psychology, narrowed down all of my choices, did my dissertation, my uh, started my PhD in psychology. And then probably about five years into my professional journey, once I'd come out the other side of university and started working with people, I started to realize that sports psychology is actually human psychology. Yeah. That if it applies to an athlete, it applies to everybody. If it applies to a sports team, it'll apply to any team. And so I then broadened what I was calling sports psychology out into human performance psychology um, and applying it in all sorts of different ways. It must have taken a lot of grit as a, 18 17 18 year old to to make that decision to go back to a levels did you did you go back to the same institution that you've been studying at yeah yeah i i think i i was probably backed into a corner a little bit um i didn't at the time i mean i knew i'd failed maths mm. and physics spectacularly but I probably didn't view it as much of a failure as you'd expect um, at the time. Uh, I, I think I'd done all right in law, bizarrely, which I didn't have any background in. I just thought it was quite an interesting subject and something yeah. I'd never studied before. So I'd done all right in law. And therefore, I, I probably came out thinking if I pick the right subject and I pick one I'm interested in, I'll probably do OK. Um, so I don't, I don't think I'd taken as much of a hit in terms of my identity and thinking of myself as a failure, um, as you'd expect at that time. And, um, I I think it probably also helped that a couple of my mates had (laughs) done the same sort of thing together. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was going back in with a bunch of folk that, uh, that I knew as well. So fair enough. So you, you get to the end of, of, of university and you've got this qualification and this newfound passion for sports psychology how, how do how do you begin a, a career as a sports psychologist because i imagine it's a relatively competitive and um a competitive field with a small number of job opportunities well, yeah and actually when i did it um because i'm now very old and very gray when i did it um it was a very very young discipline yeah so Nobody had a sports psychologist. I mean, there are there are lots of practicing sports psychologists now. Most sports teams have them. There's a bunch of them working in the Olympic programs. When I came out of university, nobody had a sports psychologist, um, not even, you know, the top Premier League football clubs. Mm. Um, so that was part of the challenge. But what I had on my side, um, I came out of university not only with paper qualifications. Uh, at the end of my first year undergraduate, um, I went down, so I was studying in Leeds, went down to Headingley, and I was looking for a rugby league coaching award because um, I'd, I'd deliberately gone to the north to play rugby league rather than rugby union. I was brought up in rugby union country in the southwest, um, and I was looking for a coaching award. I was introduced to a guy who ran the coaching awards at Leeds Rugby League Club, um, which is now called Leeds Rhinos, and uh, he saw me 
dripping from head to toe in sports gear. Asked me if I was a sports science student. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 I am, yeah. And, and he said to me, do you, do you want to come out and help in the gym? Um, just with the academy, um, tidying up the clipboards, tidying up the weights afterwards. And I leapt at the opportunity. Mm. So for a few weeks, I helped out in the gym with the academy. And uh, I would ask him all the awkward questions like, why do you do this exercise before that one? He said, I don't know. Um, I said, well, you know, if you swap them around, you prime the neurological system by doing this one and then you express it by doing the next one. It's like, oh, right. So um, he was the artist and I was the scientist in our little nice. duo yeah. at the time. Um, and after a few weeks, he said, do you want to come out and help with the first team? Uh, he was also working with Yorkshire Cricket, who were also based at Headingley. Do you want to come and help with Yorkshire Cricket? And by the time I, so this was in the end of my first year undergraduate, by the time I started my second year undergraduate, he'd got the job as the first ever fitness coach for England cricket. So in the first weeks of my second year, I was writing fitness training programs, designing fitness testing for England cricket. Amazing. They'd never had a fitness testing program. They'd never had off-season training programs. Um, we designed the first ever cricket fitness conference that had ever existed um, we then designed one for football that didn't have one either and all of this was before I finished my undergraduate training at university so I left with a degree but also with a CV that said yeah. he's designed fitness testing and training programs for international cricket um, and of course when you go out into the big wide world People don't just want to know what's on the CV in terms of qualifications. They want to know who you've worked with, what you've yeah. done. And the first question I got when I went out and started practicing, because I, I, I worked in semi-pro sport whilst I was doing my master's degree, um, just to earn a few quid here and there, you know, yeah. to pay the rent and all that sort of stuff. And uh, the first question from the coaches, who have you worked with? Who can I phone to find out whether you're any good or not? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> this voodoo so, stuff that you so do. I could, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so then I could turn around and say, well, have a chat to these guys. I've worked with them. Um, and that that was my sort of first tentative steps into working in the world of elite sport. Interesting. And of course, you know, if, if you're doing a decent job and word gets round, then that supports you going a little bit higher up the ladder and a little bit higher up the ladder. And then when I left university, I I had premiership rugby on my CV, I had uh, international cricket, I had Super League rugby, you know, and, and that's not bad when you're stepping out from university into the big yeah. wide world. Um, it'll probably help you get some fairly early exposure into the Olympic programs and all that sort of stuff. So, mm -hmm. and because it was a really, really young industry, I was one of the very first practicing sports psychs um, to work in Olympic programs and professional sport. So, so was there an element of, you know, in, in those kind of early pitches to organisations of saying you, you need this or were they or, they, or were they looking for it? Uh, there was a little bit of both, honestly. Yeah. Um, I, I can remember a few interesting conversations um, in the early years. Uh, one, one football club turned around and said, but we're only uh, in X league. Mm -hmm. um, why do we need this stuff? And my answer back was, well, do you want to stay in this? Yeah, league? I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> um, isn't this a bit of a no-brainer? Why wouldn't you want this stuff? And, and to be honest, probably my, my very early conversations were dominated by my own real conviction that not having this 
is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you know, look at the difference it makes. Look, look at the impact that it has when you get this stuff right. Mm. And, and bizarrely, I heard some, uh, some, it's, they sound like kind of, um, uh, ridiculous phrases when you say them out loud. So one football manager, really, really senior said, I get sports psychology. I just don't get sports psychologists. <laughs> so he, he knew that, and, and he would openly say, you know, the, the, the thing that has the biggest impact on our performance is what goes on between players' ears. Yeah. So, okay, we understand that bit. It's just your faith in the sports psychologist to be able to affect that. Yeah, and, and so create that change. Why don't we do something, see if it works. If it looks like it's working, we'll do a little bit more. If that looks like it's working, we'll do a little bit more. If it doesn't, hey, that's fine, you know. Um, I'll, I'll go off and find something else to do. You find somebody else to work with. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, in, in terms of those high performers that you've worked with, whether they're kind of teams or, or individuals, what are the, what are the common traits that you notice that, that kind of precede success? There, it's one of those questions I asked about 15 or so, maybe 20 years ago, um, because I've been working in the Olympic programs uh, with elite international uh, sports people. And I'd noticed some traits that made them great, but I also wanted to know whether I would see the same traits outside of sport. Right. If I took world-class performers in any field. So I actually got a dozen people, found a dozen people, um, all sorts of different walks of life. So there was a world uh, leading mountaineer in there. There was a world barista champion, Michelin star chef. There were some athletes in there, all sorts of folk. And I was looking for the, the common characteristics. Um, the foundational characteristic for me is that they're, they are all driven by a real passion for what they do. Right. And I'm going to caveat this by saying you can become successful without it, but you're unlikely to be sustainably successful without it. Because there are players in, in sport, very high profile names, the likes of Andre Agassi and Tiger Woods and people like that, Marit Safin, they got to the top, but they didn't stay there. Because the thing that drove them to become great um, evaporated when they became successful. Mm. You know, that that drive to either prove somebody wrong or whatever it was, that can get you so far. Yeah. But uh, in Marit Safin's uh, case, it was a drive to escape poverty. Um, that's great. It will help you get out of poverty. But once you're comfortable, what's going to keep you at the top? Yeah. And, and for a lot of people, the bubble bursts if they haven't got genuine passion for what they do. And and for me, one of the real sort of powers that come with passion is, is curiosity. So, you know, passion and curiosity go hand in hand. Curiosity keeps you searching for how to become better, searching for how to solve the next problem, um, and which tends to keep you at the top. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't got that, then it's unlikely that you're going to keep working on those little things, those little incremental improvements that you need in order to stay ahead. Is is that something that you can develop? Is is curiosity a, a skill that can be grown? I think it's... So I describe passion like a fire. Um, and a, a fire grows. The, the, one of the big myths about passion is that you find your passion. Like it's hidden somewhere, um, you know, under some clutter or whatever it is or... Um, <laughs> it's uh it, somebody's somebody's 
you know, it's like hide and seek. Somebody right. put it somewhere for you to find. That's not how passion works. For me, I describe it like fire. Um, it starts with a spark, something that you could become passionate about. Mm-hmm. But that in itself isn't enough because, you know, a spark just goes out if you don't feed it with fuel and oxygen. But if you do start to feed it, you turn a spark into a flame and then you can turn a flame into a fire by feeding it some more. And that then could become a raging inferno. Mm -hmm. When I think back to my journey, I wasn't instantly passionate about sports psychology or mindset or the way that human beings work and operate and function. I was I was curious to start with. I had a few little questions that were in, you know, intrigued me, but it wasn't until I fed that that it became a fire. Mm-hmm. And if I left it, it would go out eventually. Yeah. So the curiosity is almost like the the fuel that you you keep putting on to the spark to see if it ignites. Yeah, and the the other element that I think is particularly valuable, certainly has been for me, is understanding that when you do that, it helps other people. Right. And so it's it's always reinforced by it's not just interesting, it's also valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just fun, although it becomes more fun. It becomes more enjoyable when you start to master what you know, what you do, when you can yeah. develop that sense of mastery. So. Um, so, yeah, when you follow your intrigue, follow your curiosity, you become more passionate, you become more curious again. Um, I, I describe often a, a yellow brick road of questions and answers and questions and answers. So you've got some questions, you find some answers, but with them usually come other questions. And yeah. when you follow those, you'll find some more answers, but also some more questions. You know, it's that paradox of being 30 years down the line and feeling like you know nothing, mm-hmm. um, even though when you were 30 years younger, you felt like you knew everything. everything. <laughs> So you, you, if you've got that kind of passion and you, you, you follow that to a point of mastery, I mean, you've worked with a lot of people that are at the top of their game. They've been on those kind of big stages, the Olympic finals or the Premier League grudge matches or Formula One grids or whatever those things are. They're really high stakes environments. And, and I work with a lot of people in, in business that have, you know, different stages, people that are, um, you know, maybe seeing the, the boardroom or um, that that sales conversation as as the thing that is uh, life changing. How how do you help people in those moments kind of control what's going on up here and, and minimise the noise and the nerves? The the probably most in, important single element is to simultaneously care about it and not care about it, and by that. So I often describe to athletes how we've got to compete like we train and train like we compete. Um, in in training, we've got to care about this a lot. You know, this has got to be really important or else we're not going to give it everything. On competition day, we've got to realise that actually it's just a game. Yeah. It's just a game. We're just kicking a bag of wind around or throwing a little ball around or whatever we do. That, and, and actually life and death, doesn't come into this equation at all yeah this is not life or death mm-hmm. this doesn't make you as a person you know this is not a life-defining moment it's just a game yeah now it could be an olympic final but if if we're hanging all of our self-worth if we're hanging our identity if we're hanging our success as a human being on this moment it's going to feel like we're facing a firing squad 
if we realise that we're just swimming up and down a pool or hitting a golf ball or whatever, and that the success of us as a human being, the success of our life, all that sort of stuff, does not hinge on this moment. Um, there are lots of moments in life, and that if we define ourselves by this, we're going to feel pressure. Yeah. Um, if we understand that this moment does not define us as a human being, and we start to see it for what it truly is, then all of a sudden that that experience of pressure, the angst that comes with it, starts to subside. To disappear. Yeah. So sometimes you're successful in those moments and other times, you know, it doesn't it doesn't go your way. Um, and I'm sure you've had clients and, you know, especially in the early stage of their career where they they set themselves the big goal and then it didn't quite materialize. Um, so what is what's the secret to bouncing back in those situations? The, the, those who become really good at it understand that whatever it is, there's a lesson within it. And there's an opportunity to learn from that lesson and get better, get stronger from it. Um, one of the myths, um, I don't know whether you've come across a, an idea that uh, Simon Sinek shared about the infinite game, mm -hmm. the finite game. Yeah. Um, so life is kind of an in infinite game. Uh, it's still finite because there's always an end to it. But, you know, life we could see as an infinite game. And, and actually, Simon Sinek sort of argues that sport's more of a finite game because there's a tournament or right. a competition or a match. Um, but actually, if you, if you get a, a more rounded view on this, even if we call it the Olympic final, and even if it's your last Olympics, you've still got life afterwards. Yeah, You're going to wake up tomorrow, and, it, and whether you're doing something completely different or not, there's a lesson that you could learn from today. You could all even call it today's failure if you wanted to. Mm -hmm learn that lesson and it'd be valuable for you tomorrow. Yeah. And so resilience, as I describe it, you know, one of, one of those critical parts is bounce back ability. Mm -hmm. And that comes when we start to use every moment, good, bad, or ugly, um, or average even, you know, use every moment, learn from it and make sure we're stronger on the other side. Mm. It's one of those things that's kind of easy to say, and I suppose harder to, to do. So what, what elements of you know learning are you looking for how do you how do you rationalize the feedback in in those situations uh well but first of all by saying it's okay to be disappointed yeah because you know if you came out of an olympic games and uh, and one of the athletes i worked with um he, his dream was always to represent team gb at the olympics mm -hmm. and he qualified for an olympics in athens and as many many athletes do, went down, got the kit bag full of gear, all that sort of stuff, uh, got on the plane, went went off to the Olympics and was really disappointed because he screwed up the semi-final, didn't make the final. Mm -hmm. uh, in his words, almost came home in the body bag because, you know, he he just exhausted himself, run out of gas. Yeah. Um, and and uh, not quite doggy paddled into the finish, but you know <laughs> what I mean. Um so uh, so incredibly disappointed. But when we started to unravel it, unpick it and, and learn the lessons from it, he knew that actually that experience could be the one almost like kind of career defining moment that made him successful. Yeah. If he squeezed everything he could out of that experience. Um, he then went on to become an Olympic finalist, double Commonwealth gold medalist, finished seventh fastest in history in his career. 
and will probably look back on that moment and say, end up saying thank you yeah. for that experience. Fascinating. Um, and, and actually, uh, a friend of mine shared uh, their understanding of the word forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, when you can say thank you for giving me that experience, mm. then you, you've sort of forgiven the experience, but you've also probably squeezed the benefit out of it. I love that. Um, I, I think of a, uh, I call it the resilience cycle, that understanding that everybody has the experience. We've all had good, bad and indifferent experiences. Whether you go on and learn from it or not is a choice. And if you if you say that 100% of people have the experience, not 100% of people learn from it. Yeah. Even fewer go to the next stage, which is actually putting what they've learned into practice. So just to know it is one thing, but to yeah. be able to use that and do things differently is a completely different ballgame. And so if you say 100% of people learn, fewer or 100% of people have the experience, fewer learn, even fewer squeeze the benefit out of it. And then the the fourth and final stage, which glues it all together, is to then appreciate the lesson and the experience and know that when the next one comes along, it's a, it's just a bunch of opportunities. Yeah, It looks like a tough challenge. It is. And it will feel terrible, probably. But it's actually a bunch of opportunities locked up in a, in a bit of a disguise. But if we get past the disguise and see them for what they are, then we can go and learn from them again. Brilliant. But you've got to appreciate it in order to put yourself in that position. In that, and be ready to go. Um, you, you mentioned the pool a couple of times. And one of my favourite books that you've written about the world of performance is Two Lengths of the Pool. So talk to us about that concept and how it applies not just to athletes, but to people in everyday life. Yeah, the, the whole concept came about, um, and it, as the total title suggests, um, I was working with a swimmer. Um, it took us, embarrassingly, it took us about three or four years to actually understand what his job was. And when you say it out loud, it does sound completely ridiculous. Um, so for the first three or four years, we were working in what we described as uh, a bit of a fog in hindsight. We were chasing the wrong things. We were chasing medals, championships, results, uh, getting selected for Team GB, getting on the performance pathway so that you get funded, yeah. getting sponsorship, all that sort of stuff. That That's what we had our eye on. And we thought that was the job. And it took us quite a few years to realise that isn't the job here. Um, if you're a 100 metre swimmer and you're swimming in a 50 metre pool, the job is sw- simply to swim two lengths of the pool as fast as possible. And when you focus your mind on that and you solve that problem, you can become brilliant at it. Um, so we started to really simplify and clarify what we were doing, make sure we got the job right. And, and Chris, who was that swimmer, ended up really learning, um, not, not just conceptually learning, but sort of heart and mind learning that even if you're standing on the poolside and it's the Olympic final and there are 30,000 people, um, and this probably will be the last swim of your career. Everything's led to this moment. Um, there's a medal table, you know, family are in the crowd, all that sort of stuff. Mm. The job is still to swim two lengths of the pool as fast as you can. It hasn't changed. The the circus around it, the environment, all that sort of stuff has changed, but the job hasn't changed. The job is just to swim as fast as you possibly can. And it doesn't matter that there's an Olympic champion one side and a world record holder the other side and the world champion just down the uh, in the next lane. That doesn't matter either. 
the job is still to swim two lengths of the pool as fast as you can. Mm. And if they swim quicker, they're going to win. And if you swim quicker than them, you're going to win. That's it. So let's not overcomplicate it. That is how simple things are. We could get wrapped up in all sorts of nonsense, but that is how simple things are. Um, and that understanding helped us to really focus our efforts. Hmm. Um, I also asked him what the top five things are that you need to do to swim two lengths of the pool as fast as possible. Yeah. And when I asked him, his, his initial reaction was, what, just five? I said, yeah, top five, though. Yeah. And uh, this is on the understanding that there are probably hundreds, mm -hmm. but why would we focus on number six, seven and eight if we haven't nailed down the top five? Because the top five are the five that have the biggest impact. So surely we ought to get those right before we worry about six, seven, eight, nine or ten. Yeah. And so he agreed with me on that basis that, OK, I'm not dismissing that there could be others, but I'm saying let's nail down the top five first. Um. And those five things, so for him, that meant start fast, uh, fast but efficient first length, quick turn around the wall, hold your speed for as long as you can on the way back, touch the wall with two hands, in breaststroke if you don't, you're disqualified. So let's just focus on getting those five things right. Mm. Bizarrely, of course, when we focus on those five, we don't need anything else. Else, yeah. You know, if we do those five things well, you're going to swim two lengths of the pool as fast as possible, and then everything else takes care of itself. So if I, if I think about that, from a from a sports perspective um of course when you say it as you've said it it sounds really obvious but it took you guys a couple of years to work this out if we take this into the world of you know business and and i'm a marketing manager or a, a sales director how do i work out what my two lengths are it, it this is also going to sound uh, rather obvious it's far easier to find somebody else's than find your own. Right. Because if you, if, you, if you were a sales director and somebody asked you what the finance director's job was, you'd go, well, that's perfectly simple. Yeah. They, they just need to make sure that we submit the accounts, count the money, whatever. It, that's yeah. all they need to do. This is easy. Mine's really difficult, yeah. though. Mine's really complicated. Um, and that's one of the myths that we get caught up in. Actually, when we step back and we go, okay, sales director, what is it really? Oh, it's to make sure that this team sell as many widgets as possible. Um, it might be to make sure we sell all the widgets as profitably as possible, whatever. Yeah. It, but that's got to be it. Mm -hmm. If it was marketing, maybe it's about making sure we get as many of the right kinds of inquiries as possible. Yeah. You know, let, let's just get down to the brass tacks of this thing. What is it that we've got to do? And then figure out what the most important things are that drive that performance um and there's a there is a reticence sometimes a bit of uh, resistance that people think that if we simplify it we dumb it down mm -hmm. or we dismiss its importance or whatever that's not that's not what we're doing here all we're doing is clearing back a lot of the clutter and f and and focusing on the most important elements you know, putting most of our focus on those most important elements, most of our time, energy and everything should be directed at getting these things right. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose if we take that sports team analogy, you know, if you if you place yourself at the top of that triangle, then you've got those support network and underneath you and everyone within that team has their own defined two lengths so I, i'm i'm assuming and don't let me put words into your mouth but as chris is 
sports psych and coach, you had two lengths. You had a thing that was your job um, in order to help him get to where he wanted to be. Absolutely. And his team understood that the strength and conditioning coach has a role to play, a contribution yeah. to make, the physio, the nutritionist, the performance analyst, and that when we collect up all of those and the coach and Chris and everybody, then actually in combination, we're all supporting that. And you're right, in a business, it's no different because mm. if you take this from a, a global organization's perspective, there's a two lengths of the pool for the organization. There are some key things that that organization needs to do. And then when you distill that down, there's a bit that the marketing team have got and a bit that the operations team have got and a bit that the finance team have got. And they all contribute to making this happen. Uh, part of the part of the power that, that comes with that is that we actually engage people by helping them know how they contribute yeah. to the overall mission, as it were. Mm. Because a lot of people, they can't see that line of sight. They haven't got that line of sight between what I do and what we do and, and how I contribute to our success. Mm -hmm. they, they only see the, the little bubble around them. And don't so if we can help them big, do that, it's incredibly project. motivating. Yeah. 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 Incredibly motivating. So a lot of the work that you do now is with leaders in, in business. And, and I suppose a big part of that you know, leadership job description is, is pitching ideas into existence, whether that's kind of getting sign off on strategy or galvanizing that team around the kind of vision and values. When you, when you think about the people that you've worked with that are most successful at that, what is it that they do that others don't? There's um, a characteristic in leadership. So I also looked at world-class leaders and tried to figure out what makes them great. Um, one of the very, very central characteristics is what I call the ability to lead through influence, mm -hmm. um, which I also describe as cat herding. And uh, when, when you kind of dig down under the skin of it, cat herding is, is pretty simple as well. It's all founded on a, a question. Why would they choose to? Not why do you want them to, but why would they choose to? Um, and often when I'm talking to leaders about how we get people to move in the same direction, it's ultimately driven by their choice. Mm -hmm. Why does this look like a really good idea? Why would it actually be a no-brainer, to quote a bit of a cliched, horrible phrase? But why, why would this look so, almost like it's so obvious it would be daft not to? So. If we can get that understanding and people people can, you know, in their own heads, they can figure out why making that move looks like a, a very, very good idea. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we get to the, the heart of uh, human decision making, most people make decisions in their own self-interest. We've got to figure out why their self-interest and our collective interest are actually aligned. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not aligned, we're going to get tugs of war everywhere. People are going to go off in different directions. If we can start to figure out that actually moving in this direction together makes a lot of sense, then people will start to choose to. And I, I suppose that part of that is about being able to communicate that and, and make sure that people understand what it means to them and why it might be of interest to move in that direction. Yeah, completely. Uh, and to do that, I think there are some other questions that really help. Um, what are we all trying to achieve is one of them. Um, and within 
bigger organizations to get that you were talking about bigger picture view earlier, yeah. to get that understanding as to what we're all trying to achieve so we'll, let's get out of our own little bubbles for a minute and let, let's forget that we're part of the marketing department or the sales department or the finance department or whatever it is and understand that we're part of a, a bigger organization we've got something that we're all trying to achieve together which will make us collectively successful and usually that's a combination of being profitable, delivering great customer service, you know, all that sort of stuff in, mm -hmm. in businesses. And that if we did the profit bit without the customer service or without the quality of product or whatever, it's not going to be successful sustainably. Um, we've got to get all of that stuff right. So we can't sacrifice quality for profit or customer service for quality or whatever. We can't do that. We've got to make sure we collectively all, always deliver all of it. So how can we work together to do that then? Mm. So once we know what we're all trying to achieve and why it's important to us, why it matters, it's not just a nice to have. This actually matters. We care about this stuff. Um, then we can figure out how we're going to do it. Once we figured out how we're going to go and do it, we also are talking about how we need to work together, yeah. which bit I contribute, which bit you contribute, You know how we need to make sure that we don't work in isolation or alongside each other on this, but we actually collaborate on it. Mm. Um, and then we can go and deliver it. Yeah. Is it, you've, you've just triggered a, a, a thought process in my mind. I be, Before I moved from the world of acting and, and directing into the world of business, um, I'd never heard the term siloed. So I, I started working in business and people were saying, oh, you know, we're terribly siloed. We're ter and I literally had to go to the dictionary and look it up because I was like, I, I don't understand what you mean. Because when you're putting on a piece of theater, everyone has their assigned roles. And yes, you might have the star and the, you know, the leading lady and all of that sort of stuff. And um, you'll have the director. And the, if it's a musical, you have the, the MD or the conductor. But everyone is absolutely working towards this common objective of getting the show on and making the show a success. And everyone really understands what their role is within that. So the idea of silos just didn't exist for me. And it's, it's fascinating that when you work, you know, step into the business world, it's a term that comes up time and time again. Yeah. Bizarrely, of course, even in elite sport, it does exist. Mm -hmm. um, possibly not around the team. Yeah. But there's huge, usually huge gaps between the call it in a football club, the football department and the commercial department. Right. And they, they operate, quite independent independent from each other in a lot of cases you know the football department put the uh, the team on the field and the commercial department fill the stadium and fill the corporate hospitality and put sponsors names on shirts and stuff like that yeah but but actually when when you think about it they don't really work together um and within the theater world it might be the same with the ticket office and the you know the people in yeah, the maybe theater when you get down into that stage. kind of more granular uh, yeah, back back office support then I, I can see where that kind of exists that maybe the marketing department have got a different idea from um you know the the director in terms of what goes on the poster and into the marketing campaigns and stuff but in in that moment of creation um if it's going well then you know those silos don't exist and certainly the the term was a a new one to me mm. um 
let's let's kind of move into what you're what you're doing now. So as well as being an accomplished nonfiction writer, you've recently dived into the world of fiction. Um, so before we talk about the book and, and what it's about and who it's for, let's talk about the process of how you kind of turned that idea into something that was tangible. Um, what, what was that like? Was it as simple as you thought it was going to be? I would describe it as painful. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't think it was going to be painful before you started. No, it. no. I actually thought, having written whatever it was at the time, uh, eight book. I think I think eight uh, non-fiction books. I thought, how could this be very different? You know, surely if I can write eight non-fiction books, I can write a fiction one. I, I thought it would be relatively straightforward, and even when I'd finished my second draft and I sent it to an editor I was thinking this is almost ready to go and I was expecting the editor to come back with yeah that looks great and what actually came back was that's utter garbage <laughs> um, and that's the polite version um, <laughs> the the email that I got back the subject line on the email was book feedback brackets brace yourself oh crikey <laughs> and uh, and the opening line was I'll give you the good news first at least technically you have a story because you've got a start, middle and end, but that's where your good news finishes. <laughs> and I got both barrels properly. Um, and, I, and I knew that the, the this particular editor was would not pull his punches. It's one of the reasons I decided to work with him. Yeah. And uh, and I can remember giving the – I was reading the, the email on my phone, gave the phone to Caroline, and I could see her face dropping as she read it. Mm -hmm. And she got one paragraph into the feedback, handed it back and said, I can't keep reading that. <laughs> um, and, and she also said, you don't have to keep going with this. You know, right. it's not like feeding the kids depends on you being able to write fiction. Yeah. Um, but the reason I was doing it from my point of view was important. You know, the book wasn't there because I fancied being the next JK Rowling or anything. Mm -hmm. I was writing this book to help people originally i was aiming at teenagers but actually i've since learned that it's far more beneficial for for people in their 40s 50s and 60s yeah um to help them with their life challenges their mental emotional challenges yeah it is a fictional book but the the me is there to deliver it's almost like a vehicle for people to really understand psychology and philosophy mm -hmm. the practical side of psychology and philosophy that will help them in their own lives so um so I went through the process I, I did two drafts got that feedback did a third fourth fifth got some more feedback which basically said it's still pretty rubbish um did a sixth and seventh feedback and by that point it was all right um and then eventually did 12 uh, it was my 12th wow. edit that I I published. You published and it had been through three titles at the time as well and taken me almost 7 years so it was um an experience. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good word, Simon. Um, you you obviously had to develop your uh, skills as a storyteller through through that process, um, and obviously that's you know big big passion of mine. Um, what what did you do to help you bring that story to life? One of the very very first things I got back in in that feedback from from Greg, who was the first editor, uh, he said, "Show don't tell." Mm -hmm. And bizarrely, even when I was in my fifth, sixth, seventh edit, um, and I was working with a, another copy editor, I was still telling. So I went through this process of sh uh, telling 
first of all, you know, telling mm-hmm. it almost in its entirety, because nonfiction is all about telling. Mm-hmm. And and I've become great at it. So to unlearn that was a real, yeah. uh, real challenge. But I, I went through telling to showing and telling at the same time, because I wasn't entirely sure that the reader would get what I was trying to show them. And and the feedback that kept coming back to me was trust your reader, trust your reader. They can figure this stuff out. You don't need to show them and then yeah. tell them what you've just shown them. Um, and after a while, I then got into being able to just show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was it was tough because, like I said, it was it was unlearning. You know, I I'd, I'd developed these muscles around telling, yeah. which I had to detrain in order to train some new ones. Um, so that was that was one of the biggest issues that I found. And, and also the fact that I thought great fiction writing was all about painting pictures with words mm-hmm. and that those pictures had to be very rich and detailed. And it wasn't until actually I, I reread the very first Harry Potter book, expecting to see this rich description. And there wasn't. Mm. I was like, ah. And and one part of my brain said, this isn't very good, is it? <laughs> and then I thought, but you loved it. Yeah. And then I started to understand that actually what great fiction writers do is they give you enough of the picture, but you can populate it with your imagination. And I think that's so, so important. You know, wh- wherever you're using story, whether it's in fiction or whether it's in a, in a work context, you, you have to allow your audience to imaginatively join you on the journey so it's you have to give them something because i think in in a business context you know most of us are tell 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 but but you can't give them so much that you've done all the hard work for them you have to allow people that that opportunity to be part of that creative process yeah absolutely and i know um one of the things that really hit me when when you and i delivered a session together in oh what two and a half, two and a half, three years ago? I mm-hmm. can't even remember. Pre-COVID, should we just Pre-COVID, say? Pre-COVID, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you were talking about the the importance of getting people to feel as well as know or do or yeah. think, and um, and I, I found that a real challenge because I didn't know what my reader was feeling because as a writer I wasn't really feeling anything. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't appreciate that sense of suspense because I knew what was happening next. What was coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that took me a long time to really appreciate and that I was also trying to unpick, you know, why would somebody feel that sense of apprehension when a character was in a dangerous situation? Well, because they've connected with the character. Yeah. They, they want this character to, to succeed. They don't want the character to get killed, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. If they don't really care about the character, it's like, well, kill them, don't kill them. It's fine, yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. So who who is Silence Your Demons for? If uh, if I was going to, you know, gift it to someone, who should I be gifting it to? It's a very good question. If you'd have asked me this when I published it, I'd have said teenagers. Yeah. Now I would say anybody that really wants to start controlling what goes on between their ears actually start start to uh have an impact on how they think and feel not not be at the whim of the world because uh, and this is one thing that we've uh tried to wrap into the little podcast that we've created around it is an understanding that ultimately we're responsible for our own mental and emotional health how we think and how we feel so it makes sense to develop some 
musculature that we can use mm. you know uh, flex some muscles around this stuff start to become better at controlling how we think and how we feel regardless of what's going on around us regardless of what other people are saying or doing we can start to control how we think and feel so anybody that likes that idea and wants to be able to put it into practice for themselves will gain benefit from the book and the book shares lots of potential ways that you could do this because it's also based on the understanding that there's no one size fits all there's no manual for this stuff yeah but if we can start to explore some different ways of doing things some approaches that could work so there are there are loads of approaches in there that that seb who's my principal character explores uses some work some don't work some sound like they make sense but he has to really understand how to internalize those mm. um so it, it's a it's a journey that Seb goes through from being this painfully insecure um, little lad who's crippled with self-doubt and um, struggling to make his way through the world to somebody who actually could look at himself in the mirror and say, do you know what? I like you. I'm proud of you. Hmm. Um, and, and how you get there is the important thing. You know, how how can you navigate that journey? If if you could go back uh, and give one piece of advice to the the teenage version of you, so the the, the version of you that's the same age as Seb in Silence Your Demons, um, what would it be? The best piece of advice I've ever been given is take your own advice. <laughs> and, and honestly, you know, I've I've heard so many things tumble out of my mouth when I've been talking to other people. And think at the same time, I've simultaneously thought, yeah, but do you do that? How consistently do you do that? Yes, of course, it makes sense. That's why you're saying it to somebody else. But could you honestly say with total hand on heart conviction that you do that stuff? Hmm. What would happen if you did do that stuff? How many of your challenges all of a sudden would would sort themselves out if you followed your own advice? So that is my advice to my younger self. If I started doing that earlier on in life, I'd have probably uh, tackled more of my challenges uh, with less effort, pain and heartache <laughs> over time than I have. So do you, do you think that most of us know deep down the things that we should be doing that, that would help us get to where we want to be? Yeah, and it, it helps us bridge a huge gap between knowing and doing actually putting that stuff into action, which we know, uh, but we don't always do. Uh, if we can bridge that gap, I think we, we save ourselves an awful lot of uh, trauma. <laughs> Simon, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Why Life's a Pitch podcast. If you'd like to improve the way you pitch and communicate, I'm giving away a special gift to all my listeners. We've developed the Pitching with Impact Scorecard to help you benchmark your pitch performance in six key areas. It will take you less than five minutes to complete and you'll receive a detailed personalised report packed full of insights and ideas to help you improve and grow. Just head over to dominiccolenso.com forward slash scorecard to get started.